Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Holy Human with Leanne Rimes is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, everyone. Today, we are diving into a topic that is near, but not exactly dear to me. (laughs) Who are you, I'm sure? Anxiety. Understanding and dancing with anxiety has made up a large part of my adult life, and I know I am not alone. My next guest calls anxiety a modern-day epidemic, and he has an equally modern approach to countering it. I am so honored to welcome Dr. Judd Brewer, the author of Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, on today's Holy Human. Dr. Judd, thank you for coming on the Holy Human Podcast. I am so excited to talk to you about anxiety, <laughs> which sounds, <laughs> sounds very funny. strange. Yes. It does sound funny, but I I just finished your book, Unwinding Anxiety, and I have, I've also been working with your app for the last couple of weeks, and it really has been perfect timing to to connect with your book. I, I saw Sharon Salzberg actually post about it. Mm. And right before that, I was just in a therapy session talking to my therapist about 
addictions and, and, and habits. And I'm like, we're all just basically a bunch of habits. And, <laughs> yes. and then I saw her post about your book and then started reading it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the most divine timing ever. So I just want to say thank you for creating this book because it has been the last couple of weeks really been opening me up to new ways of dealing with my anxiety, which I have dealt with for, it's been a part of my life, I think my whole life, to be mm. honest. Well, I'm so glad to hear that it's it's helping. Yeah, no, it definitely is. You know, so many of us are going through such an anxious time and I've been experiencing anxiety, some of us, our whole lives. Mm -hmm. You say that you feel like it's an epidemic. Can you explain why and how we got here? I'd be happy to. So as you're referring to, and I jokingly say this in the book, you know, BC before COVID-19, which seems like <laughs> ancient times. <laughs> yes, it does. We we all get anxious. Anxiety is part of life. And it it is kind of born from the survival mechanism in our brain, which takes a lack of information or uncertainty and kind of spins that into a driving force to go get information. The way I think of it is, you know, when we're hungry and we, we have a, we're low on calories, our stomach rumbles, and that urges us to get off our butts to go get some food. In the same way, when we have a lack of information, our brain rumbles and we have this urge to go get information. So, you know, getting information is, is survival, literally, for our brain, just like getting food is survival for our body. Interesting. So, I mean, and we are living in a time where information is coming at us 24-7. Yes. So is that, obviously, I feel like that's kind of driving home our anxiety even more and upping the ante. Yes. I think there are several aspects here. One is you can think of it as uncertainty is that piece that's that's the motivating factor that says go get mm -hmm. information. If you look at our ancient ancestors, there was Certainly there was uncertainty, but it came in a different form. So, for example, if there was a saber-toothed tiger or a lion or whatever it was that was coming to eat us, we didn't have to go on a chat forum and discuss how dangerous <laughs> saber-toothed tigers were. We didn't, you know, we didn't, our brain wasn't like, is that a deep fake? Have they now deep faked, right. you know, saber-toothed tigers? <laughs> oh, you know, yes. so back then it was pretty straightforward. You see the tiger, you run. And right. now, not only, as you're pointing out, is there a whole lot more information? You know, the internet has allowed us to get information 24-7, but we all also have to sift through that constantly to see what is accurate, uh, what is real, <laughs> you know, right. and what is worth listening to. Yeah, I mean, I know for myself, it's this constant, do I believe what I'm reading, which can cause anxiety in itself because you're like, well, wait, what, what is true? Yes. You know, and, and that's, uh, I think, especially during this past year when there's been so much, you know, well, not even just this past year, past probably four years more so than anything, you know, there's been just so much conflicting information. And, and I know for myself, that's definitely driven up, driven my anxiety through the Yes. Room. You take a mindfulness approach to anxiety. And I know we've talked a little bit about mindfulness on this podcast, but I was wondering if you could refresh our memory a bit about what mindfulness is and why it's such a key component in helping us work with our anxiety. I'd be happy to. Here I would say let's break it down into its core elements because mindfulness can mean different things to different people. So mm -hmm. here 
core elements really are awareness and an attitude of curiosity. Some describe it as non-judgment. I like curiosity, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, but if we're bringing awareness and curiosity to our everyday experience, what it helps us do is to really start to see how our minds work. Because if we don't know how our minds work, we can't work with them. So it helps us see how our minds work. But then critically, it helps us really tap into the strongest parts of our brain, which ironically form habits in the first place around anxiety and worry and procrastination and other things. But that's actually the only place that we can change a habit is through updating the reward value in our brain. So we have to go to the place that it originates and basically, I mean, basically utilize that piece to start to help us instead of work against us. We do. We do. I have tons of patients that come into my office that have no idea how their minds work, you know, and they've been mm -hmm. pushed and pulled by anxiety their entire lives. And, you know, they've tried this and that, but they haven't been able to link up any consistent, you know, I can do X in order to help my anxiety uh, because they haven't really understood how their minds work. I think sometimes for me, I understand, I've, I've, you know, I read a lot of things and I, I understand how the mind works, but sometimes the bodily sensations, sometimes the, the old pro programming in the body can be so overwhelming that it's like whatever I learned about, you know, about how the mind works just kind of like goes out the window. And that that instinct takes over. You know, it's so interesting you say that because I 100% I, I agree. And I'll say the way I think of this is that our thinking brain doesn't hold a candle to our feeling body. Mm -hmm. So we can understand something is bad for us. For example, you know, I shouldn't smoke or I shouldn't overeat or I shouldn't worry. But that, <laughs> that, that <laughs> we can't just understand it. Otherwise, all my, right. none of my patients would smoke. They'd all quit smoking or they'd never start smoking in the first place because they knew it was right. bad for them. So it's really these urges, these primitive uh, survival instincts that have gotten kind of caught up in modern day where food is designed to be addictive, where social media is designed to be addictive, where, you know, worry is held as a badge of honor. Right. <laughs> so, so all of, you know, all of those pieces, it's like this old brain meets modern society and suddenly we're off to the races with all sorts of bad habits. Yeah, I feel that completely. You talk about habits a lot in this book. Can you walk us through how a habit is formed? I'd be happy to. The three elements that form a habit that are necessary and sufficient are a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So, for and this was actually set up for our ancient ancestors to remember where food is. So the idea is, mm -hmm. you know, you see food, there's the trigger, you eat the food, there's the behavior, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, you know, remember what you ate and where you found it. From a brain perspective, we think of this as a reward. So because this dopamine spritz really helps us lay down this memory. So mm -hmm. any habit is formed that way. And you can think of them as being formed through positive reinforcement where let's say we eat some cake, it tastes good. And then we learn to eat more cake, especially if we associate it with um, holidays and celebrations and things like that. But also through negative reinforcement where it makes something that is unpleasant go away. So for example, if we, if our shoes are untied for, and we, so there's the, the, the trigger, the behaviors that we trip on our shoes, our shoelaces, and then that's a negative uh, reinforcement that says, hey, why don't you learn how to tie your shoes? And then we tie our shoes, and then that removes that negative of tripping on our over our feet. Got it. So 
So it's not just, yes, so it can be a negative reward. You can be trying to avoid something, which I think is, I mean, I feel like a lot of my life and my anxiety has stemmed from the avoidance of something Yes. than it is the actual uh, high of, of getting something, which is interesting because I know in your book you say that there's many ways that we kind of learn, and one of them is, is the avoidance <laughs> yes. role, which I think I kind of lean more toward that one, <laughs> which has been really interesting. I mean, it was so fascinating to see that I feel like we all kind of play in all of those areas of the avoidance, the kind of the one that I, I forgot how you actually phrase it, the one that kind of goes towards mm-hmm. the one that avoids. And then it's kind of the fight, flight or freeze, right? Yes. Yes. And and so I've, I feel like I definitely, as I took the the test in your book, I felt like I, I definitely find myself going towards each of those, but definitely the, uh, the one that was more of avoidant. The the avoidant type was the one that I find to fall into. (laughs) (laughs) You say that anxiety itself can be a habit. I was wondering if you could kind of go into that a little bit because I found that very interesting and I found that that was definitely a piece that I could relate to. This is actually part of the seed for the whole Unwinding Anxiety book because I Mm -hmm. never learned this in medical school or residency. I generally learned how to prescribe, you know, medications to give people right. for anxiety. And it was actually my own anxiety of not being able to help my patients with their anxiety that mm-hmm. led me to go back and look at this. So basically, there's this this number needed to treat in medicine called uh, that that gives you a rough estimate of how well a medication works. And that for anxiety, it's 5.15, meaning you know, I, I have to treat five patients before one person shows a significant benefit. So I was playing the anxiety lottery with my patients, you know, which right. which one of five people is going to benefit. And that anxiety was leading me to look back and see what's, you know, what can we do differently or what am I missing? And it turns out serendipitously, my lab was studying this app called Eat Right Now, where we were looking at helping people change overeating habits. And we had gotten pretty good results with that. And somebody said, hey, I'm, I'm mapping out my habit loop around eating. And it goes like this. A- anxiety triggers me to eat. And then that eating <laughs> doesn't actually fix the anxiety. So can you make an anxiety program to fix my anxiety? <laughs> and this is where I went back and looked and found that there's actually a pretty good literature from the 1980s that suggested that anxiety could be negatively reinforced just like any other habit. And that's where my, you know, my eyes popped out of my head. And I was thinking, wow, you know, this is amazing because I, I know how to work with habits. So could we actually bring the work that I'm doing in my lab together and form you know, a program for anxiety? And long story short was, you know, we got a 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. And that number needed to treat was 1.6 as compared to mm-hmm. 5.15 with medications. So and that's using mindfulness. That's using mindfulness, yes. yes. So the, basically the way this works, so the way somebody forms a habit around anxiety is that anxiety or a negative emotion can trigger worry. So if somebody has an unpleasant sensation in their body or they have a, a pain and they start to worry, oh, no, you know, could this be bad? Uh, that worry, especially, so I should say, if somebody <laughs> has some pain, you know, like chest pain or something like that, they should make sure that it isn't a medical condition. But often, right. <laughs> often folks will have some, you know, they'll have a pain that they've had or they'll 
they'll just wake up in the morning. Like my patients with anxiety, they wake up and they're anxious and then they start worrying. Oh, no, am I going to be anxious all day? Or what's, what's the cause of this anxiety? That worry itself is a mental behavior that then drives anxiety more because that worry is our brains interpret this as well. At least I'm doing something. So it gives people a feeling of control. <laughs> Yet, <Yeah>. su <laughs> surprise, it doesn't actually give us any more control than we had when we weren't <laughs> worrying. And the worry makes our thinking brain go offline. It's harder to think and plan when we're worried. So that then feeds back and drives more anxiety, which then feeds forward and drives more uh, worry, which then you know causes this vicious cycle. Yeah, the uh, the worry piece for sure. I, I uh, the anxiety for me that I, I'm noticing is a loop, um, and maybe some people can relate to this because I've also dealt with with depression. Um, I feel like my body's kind of gone. Uh, it either feels like it has one option or the other. It feels like it has this kind of freeze depressed mode mm -hmm. or it has this anxiety that it can, it can utilize to drive itself out of freeze. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's energizing, and right? The it is piece. energizing. And I, I mean, I think about the ways in which I utilize anxiety. I think a lot of us do sometimes for performance. Like when we think about, oh, you know, if I feel, I mean, I did it before, <laughs> I did it before our conversation. And by the way, podcasting is a new thing for me. And I, it, it brings up so much anxiety for me mm -hmm. that I was literally sitting here before doing loving kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. And it, I opened my eyes and I went, this shit works. Like, <laughs> I was like, it really does. And I've, I've done loving kindness meditation before, but not in utilizing it in the way of like when I'm anxious mm -hmm. to like drop in and it really does work. And so I think a lot of people can relate to that performance piece too, of thinking like, if I rev myself up, then I can go right into, you know, whatever I need to do. There feels like there's a kind of more of a drive per se to do a better job. Like the anxiety is going to make us perform better, which I know you've said in your book that it's completely opposite. <laughs> it is. And it's something that I think <laughs> is probably going to be perpetuated through the internet for a long time where this idea <laughs> that performance is improved by anxiety, even though there's no evidence to support it. Now, I think there's a piece that you're talking about here, which is an increased level of energy or arousal. Certainly, mm -hmm. if we're asleep, we can't do a podcast. And if we're, you know, <laughs> and if we're overhyped, right. it's also challenging there. But the piece here that we can tap into is, you know, what type of energy are we talking about? So, for example, with anxiety, that that energy feels restless, you know, kind of closed down tight. Whereas if somebody is in flow, you know, I think of that as optimal performance where mm -hmm. they are they don't even know what anxiety feels like because they've basically lost a sense of self. They are so in the moment. Right. There's right. tons of energy there, yet it's a very different energy. All right, we're going to take a super quick break, but when we return, Dr. Judd will share just how you can tap into that more positive, more productive energy. 
tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back, my friends. We're talking with Dr. Judd Brewer about better navigating anxiety. You talk a lot about contraction and expansion and that being kind of our key into what mode we're in, mm-hmm. I guess, at that moment. And uh, yeah, there's when I was doing the loving kindness meditation before, I all of a sudden felt like my body like literally does expand. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, when you're in that mode of closed down, and tight and feeling like all of this, when I talk about anxiety, I feel, for me, I feel like there's this energy just kind of like running throughout my body that someone plugged me into a wall socket. Mm -hmm. When you're in that state, like we were saying earlier, sometimes it's really hard to, to think or, or to grab onto that new habit Yes. Of loving kindness. Luckily, I've been working with your app for the past couple of weeks, and these have become a daily occurrence where I'm noting I'm doing loving kindness meditation. And it's it definitely does pull you out of it. But I think at first it's hard to it's hard to remember these things when we're in these feelings. What do you suggest when we're going through like just we're having a kind of a panic anxiety attack? What's the first thing? 
that can start to bring us into these other options? Well, here I would say, and I, within, for example, within panic attack, it's hard to be doing anything besides panicking. Right. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> the, the good news is there that the panic attacks actually last a very short period of time. So after, you know, after it's over, we can do, we can look back on that and look at the, you know, the sensations, the thoughts and whatever that went through our head and in our, and through our bodies. And we can start to see these as they are. Okay. So that was a thought. I, you know, for example, I had panic attacks during residency training. So it would Mm -hmm. be this thought that I was going to die. I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing. And I had actually learned to work with them in the moment, but we can even do this right afterwards where we think, okay, my heart was racing. My, you know, felt like I was going to die. That was a, there was a sensation. There were thoughts and whatever. And that helps us start to get the perspective where we can be aware of those things and not be identified with them. Mm -hmm. Because this is key for keeping a panic attack just as a panic attack, as this momentary occurrence and not developing into full-blown panic disorder. Because if we start worrying that we're going to have another panic attack, then we start avoiding situations like that, or we start just getting more anxious thinking about them. And that's actually what what makes us fall into panic disorder. Yet that part is optional. We don't really have control over having panic attacks, but how we respond to the panic attack is critical. And that's actually really the key of mindfulness for anything. It's it's not that we have worry thoughts. It's not that we have feelings of anxiety. It's that we are identified with them and get caught up in them. So we can change our relationship to our thoughts and emotions and body sensations. And by changing that relationship, we're not as caught up. We can be with with them in the moment. Oh, I just had a panic attack as compared to, oh, no, I just had a panic attack. And then we start (laughs) panicking that we might have another one. Yeah. In the book, you have people map out their their habit loops. Can you kind of walk us through what that mapping looks like? Yes. I think if this is kind of the first of three steps in working with any type of habit, we've got to see the territory. We've got to map the territory of our own minds. And really, it's just mapping the trigger, the behavior, and the result. So let's say stress eating, for example. If anxiety is the trigger, my behavior is stress eating, then I could start to map those out and then see what the result is. You know, do I, does it actually fix the anxiety? Generally not. Uh, Does it make me feel worse? Yes. And those types of things. So the mapping process is really just anything that helps us see, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. Got it. And then you were saying there's three steps. So the second step and and what, what are two and three? Yeah. So the second step flows right from the first, which is, And I guess a little bit of neuroscience background here to explain this is our brain is only going to change a behavior if it sees that that behavior is no longer rewarding. So uh, and if it's more rewarding than previous, then we're going to actually hold on to it even more. So with unhealthy habits like smoking, we have to pay attention to the direct experience right in the moment when we smoke so we can line up that cause and effect relationship between the behavior and the results. So I have my patients, I tell my patients to actually smoke when they want to come and quit smoking and they look at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) And, And I say, no, that's actually really important. You have to see what you're getting from smoking right now. And they realize that cigarettes taste like crap. 
right? So right. they start to become disenchanted with it simply by paying attention as they smoke. Same is true for worrying. When somebody's worrying, I have them really pay attention. What's it feel like when you worry? Does it solve the problem? Does it keep your family safe? Does it do what you think it is doing? And when they can clearly see that it's not keeping somebody safe, it's actually making it harder for them to perform whatever, that's when they start to become disenchanted with the behavior. So that's the second step is really paying attention to the results of what your what the behavior is, whether it's physical or mental. I, I can give you an example. My lab just finished a study where we embedded a tool to help people pay attention as they were overeating in this Eat Right Now app. And it only took 10 or 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overate for that reward value to drop below zero where they shifted oh, that wow. behavior from overeating to not overeating. Does that make sense? Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually not that many times. It's not. It's, you know, and it's it makes sense because our brains are very plastic. We can't be chased by saber-toothed tigers 15 times, you know, and, and hope that we get away all 15. <laughs> it's like we have to learn really quickly that those things are dangerous. And right, right. so our brains are, I think they're set up to learn very quickly. But the key there is we have to pay careful attention. That's that's the key. Careful attention and repetition. I know that you've mm -hmm. mentioned smaller windows of time throughout the day, which at the beginning, I'm like, I can't remember to do this. And then all of a sudden, I find myself like noting, like, oh, I'm hearing, seeing. <laughs> I've probably done it like six, six or seven times this morning. And that's, I think, also such a key piece mm -hmm. and something that I think we can get so caught up in our busy lives that we forget that we're also you know, break, trying to break a habit and, and step out of our habitual behaviors. And you talk about curiosity often. I wish, I wonder if you could just or expand on that more, why that is so important when it comes to, uh, to changing a habit. Sure. So that, that first step of mapping out our habit loops leads mm -hmm. to the second step, which is helping our brain see how unrewarding the old behavior is. But that then sets up this sets the stage for the third step, which I think of as the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So if our brain becomes disenchanted with overeating or worrying or procrastinating or whatever, it opens the space for our brain to do something that's more rewarding, to bring in a healthy habit. And here, I think one of the healthiest habits we can have is being curious. So curiosity helps us in many, in multitude of ways. I think of it as a superpower. A couple of concrete mm -hmm. ways that it becomes that bigger, better offer is when we're anxious, you know, anxiety kind of closes us down. It makes us restless. Curiosity opens us up, right? And so you can't be closed and open at the same time because they're binary opposites. So you can kind of inject curiosity into the moment when we're curious and we can get curious, I'm sorry, when we're anxious, when we get and when we're anxious, we can get curious about what that anxiety feels like. Oh, what does this feel like as compared to, oh, no, I'm anxious again. That, oh, opens us up and also feels better. The other thing it does is it helps us gain some perspective. So you can think of there's this thing called the observer effect in physics where, you know, by observing, they were trying to measure the mass of electrons and they would hit it with hit the electrons with photons and they noticed that they were actually changing the mass, the measurement by, by doing that. So they called this the observer effect. By observing, you're going to affect the results. Well, with, in psychology, we can do the same thing. By observing thoughts and emotions, we can actually affect the results. And we affect them by 
helping to gain perspective. We get some distance between ourself and our thoughts and our, ourself and our emotions as compared to being identified with them. And what helps us get that distance is curiosity. Oh, here's the thought. Oh, here's an emotion as compared to, um, oh, no, I am anxious or I am an anxious person. Interesting. We're talking about part of mindfulness meditation is to bring openness to the body where there once was contraction. Um which you consider the openness and the curiosity, the reward. So for me, and I, I think maybe some people can relate to this, when the feeling of anxiety feels more comfortable than being open and relaxed, how can we begin to see that openness as a reward? You know, I've, I've done a lot of meditation and that, that openness does feel like a reward in meditation. But then I step out into the real world and it becomes a lot of things trigger me to contract. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that openness doesn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. So when, when we look at, when we see that openness maybe as a lack of safety or a, or a loss, how, how do we start to tap into these feelings of openness and curiosity to where that becomes the reward? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great question. So here, I think of the curiosity as helping us see things clearly, helping us see without bias. Mm -hmm. So we might go out into the world and there might be something that our brain says, oh, that could be dangerous. If we are basing that on things that we have learned in the past. So for example, implicit bias is this way. We, uh, mm -hmm. If somebody sees uh, another person with a different skin color and they have been implicitly conditioned to think that that's a dangerous person, then their fear mechanism might kick in and they say, oh, there's danger here. And then they turn away and they actually perpetuate that bias, right? So notice how there's no curiosity there. There's no openness. Right. The the curiosity helps us see clearly where we might be able to identify. Oh, I you know I have this implicit bias. I I'm noticing my body contracting here just because it's been conditioned this way. Can I open and ask? Oh, is there actual actually danger here uh, as compared to just something that my brain has been conditioned to do? So the openness isn't necessarily gonna. Uh, it's going to help us see clearly, help us see when something is dangerous and help us see when something isn't dangerous as compared to just, you know, utilizing our lizard brain, so to speak, where we see something and we run away immediately. And then that actually just perpetuates whatever that habit is. So that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, which then goes back <laughs> as I'm saying that I'm like. Which goes back to the the feeling in the body, then sometimes not leaving us access to mm -hmm. that openness in a in a real life situation. I, I guess what that basically is is just us continuing to train ourselves in our own time so that we can react differently out in the world. Right. And one way we can do that is, you know, if we if we're out in the world and something, you know, triggers our fear and we run away, we can look back at that as soon thereafter as possible because you know, we learn best from immediacy. Mm -hmm. So we look back and we say, was that actually dangerous? And so we can get curious in that moment after we've already fled the scene, so to speak. And if it was actually dangerous, then we can we can line that up and say, okay, that was dangerous. I need to do that again. And we learn. If we say, oh, maybe I was just 
conditioned to do this or that maybe that wasn't as dangerous after all, we can get curious and you know even go back and relive it and see what was it that, that triggered me. We can learn something about our own minds and our own reactivity. And then in future situations, we can see, you know, is this similar? Can I turn toward this? Can I be open to this? Can I get curious? Oh, is this my mind reacting in a way that is that is habitual or conditioned so that we can start to lean in to that discomfort rather than run away? Then I'll also point out any new experience is going to be felt as a little uncomfortable to our brains and to us because our brain is saying, hey, this is different. Make sure there's no danger here. So, mm. of course, we need to make sure that the scene is safe. But then we, instead of kind of moving into our panic zone, we can move into our growth zone. And instead of going, oh, no, this is dangerous, go, oh, what is going on here? Is this my brain, you know, just uh, reacting to something? And then we can lean in and we can grow and we can learn. Mm-hmm. You talk about mindset, which you just mentioned, um, a growth mindset mm -hmm. compared to a fixed mindset. Can you explain what those are and why those are so important in uh, in changing our, our habits? Yes. These terms were first coined by Carol Dweck, who's a Stanford professor, uh, and she was doing a lot of research in the education space. Uh, long story short, looking at people who felt that they only had a certain level of intelligence, for example, they didn't learn as much as people who could learn that their brains are plastic, basically. This is even way before, you know, these buzzwords of neuroplasticity and other things right. came around. And I love her terminology because it fits beautifully with this sense of feeling closed and open, you know, with anxiety feeling closed and curiosity feeling open. When we're closed, we're in fixed mindset. You know, this is the way things are. We're not actually in a place where we can learn. When we can inject curiosity, for example, we can then move into that growth mindset and we can open to it. So, for example, if I say something nutty on a podcast, for example, just hypothetically speaking, afterwards, I could go and regret, you know, start going over in my mind what I call review and regret. I could review it and I could regret that I said that. And then, you know, I get stuck in this fixed mindset. Oh, I'm terrible on podcasts. Nobody's going to invite me, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm going to, I'm going to end up in the gutter, you know? And so instead of that, I could look back and say, wow, <laughs> I said something kind of nutty. And that, wow, that, oh, could open me where I could look and learn. And I could look at what happened. I could learn from it. And that puts me in growth mindset to say, okay, you know, maybe don't explain it that way next time, you know? Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's funny. I, I feel like at a certain point in life, you kind of feel like you stop learning and you get into – you know, you, you think, oh, I'm at a certain age. It's like my growth mindset is now a fixed mindset. <laughs> it's very easy to do, I guess. Mm -hmm. That was that was something that hit me in the book uh, because I recognized how often it's so easy to slip into a fixed mindset because mm -hmm. we have, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm only 38, but I feel like I, you know, I have a lot of, I think we go into this thing of I have a lot of experience and it becomes, you start to pull from that fixed experience yes. instead of, opening yourself up to, you know, God, I mean, the, uh, you know, multitude of, of possibility that exists in the universe because that feels unsafe. Yes. You know, we feel very safe in our own little experience and this is what I know world. Um, and so that really, that really hit me. I was like, oh, I, 
I am in a fixed mindset yeah. often and I haven't even recognized because for me, I, I like to learn and I, I often think that I am in a growth mindset. <laughs> I'm probably not. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're pointing out something really important. There's this tension between kind of our old and our new brains and they're both trying to help us survive. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the old brain, you know, find food, avoid danger and is helped by the our newer parts of our brain, our neocortex, which help us think and plan. Mm-hmm. And what what our thinking and planning brains are trying to do is predict the future. And right. when there's uncertainty, it's harder to predict the future. So if we can kind of walk around or insulate ourselves and live more in a bubble where we only uh, associate with certain people that say certain things, you know, it feels comfortable. If we live in a house that's safe, it feels comfortable. And so we're more likely to stay in our house as compared to venture outside where there's, you know, there's less certainty. So that survival part of the brain is saying, hey, try to make the world as predictable as possible. Yet, the world is not predictable. You know, <laughs> we don't have right. control over the world. So it's this it's this tension between that and then being able to be open to learn when things are constantly changing. And so mm-hmm. both can help, but having that growth mindset and constantly going outside of our comfort zones to challenge ourselves, but also finding the reward in that. And I think you highlighted one piece of this. It feels great to learn things, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can remember, oh, it feels good to learn things. If we can remember, don't only, you know, watch the news that we, you know, that we, <laughs> that we associate with, like watch all the news and see however, you know, so we can really challenge ourselves to, to be in that growth mindset and see that as a benefit as compared to just trying to wall ourselves off, you know, it, it might feel uncomfortable at the beginning, but as we learn to lean into uncertainty, then the the joy that comes with discovery can be its own reward. Yeah, absolutely. And there is joy in discovery. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for saying that because I, I really hope that people take that in because it's been something for me that even through this podcast – to be curious, you know, people have always been curious about me. I've always been the one um, being asked the questions and it's so different to be on the other side mm. and be the one, you know, that is curious. And and it's been, it's been really fun to do that. Some key pieces that you emphasize when it comes to mindfulness and when it comes to changing habits is one is non-judgment and the other is kindness, mm. um, which I think a lot of us struggle with, <laughs> especially you have that internal dialogue of constantly beating yourself up. Yeah. These are two pieces that I think are super important. Mm. I wonder if you could just kind of expand upon that and also loving kindness and how that how bringing loving kindness to these pieces of us that we are looking to shift, how that plays a role. Sure. So maybe we could even use examples of, say, anxiety and judgment just to give Mm -hmm. concrete examples. So if we can map out a habit around anxiety. So, for example, anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying, and we can start to see that worrying doesn't keep our family safe. It doesn't solve the problem. We become disenchanted with it. We can then substitute curiosity for worry. So when we're mm-hmm. anxious, we get curious. Oh, you know, what does this feel like? Um, where do I feel it most in my body? All of those things. And that can open us to our direct experience. In the same way, we can start mapping out self-judgment habit loops. And I write a bit about this in my book because it is so pervasive, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It is. Where, for example, if we um, if we do something that we regret, we start to feel shame and then we start to, so that could trigger us to judge ourselves. Oh, I can't believe I did that. 
And then we beat, you know, that beating ourselves up is doing something just like worrying is doing something. So there could be a reward in that because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it can't change the past, but we can beat ourselves up for it. You know, right. okay, I'm doing something. We can start to turn toward that and notice that that also feels closed and contracted. Then we can bring in, you know, this third step, this bigger, better offer. What feels better than judging ourselves while being kind to ourselves, truly being kind to ourselves. So they are just simple acts of kindness. We can remember what it's like when somebody's been kind to us. Already that opens us up uh, and helps us step out of that old habit of self-judgment. And this is where loving kindness comes in specifically. You know, the it's loving kindness is really about tapping into our inherent capacity to be kind. It's really tapping into this opening quality that comes with kindness. And, you know, my lab's even done neuroimaging studies to look at people's brains as they practice loving kindness. Interestingly, the same brain regions that get really active when we're caught up in worry, quiet down when we are practicing loving kindness. And the idea is, as you know, you can't be closed and open at the same time. So loving kindness opens us up simply, you know, it's, you know, we can use phrases of, you know, may I be happy? May I be kind to myself? You know, things like that, mm-hmm. um, that can help us tap into it. But the, it's really that feeling of opening that comes when, when we're kind to ourselves or when somebody's being kind to us. So we can even recall those moments and that opens us up and that quiets down these brain regions that get caught up when we're judging ourselves or when we're worrying. And after we take a quick breather, we'll be right back with more ways to tap into less judgment and less anxiety. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back, everyone. We're diving into ways in which judgment can trigger anxiety. I find it so interesting that judgment in itself can be a habit loop. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and which I, which then and for me, like in turn, I think I'm keeping myself safe by judging myself or I, my internal judge. Sometimes I feel like I have to drive myself to be able to do the things that I need to do. I found that mapping out these habit loops, by the way, which I also think could be a habit loop in itself, constantly seeing the habit loops. <laughs> <laughs> it really is fascinating. And the idea of constantly having to have something external, you know, to mm. soothe, even if it's a healthy habit, it always seems like it's it's external and not internal. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be from something I internally generate. Mm-hmm. And don't you already internally generate the judgment and everything, you know, everything else is internally generated. So when we think of shifting to our internal uh, internal rewards instead of external rewards. I mean, the external is not going anywhere. Our desires and our our wants and those things will always be there. Mm-hmm. How do you find that balance? I guess it's almost like that that phrase of like being in the world but not of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> almost of like you where your external reward base because I don't think we've ever been taught that really. Yeah. Like the internal rewards are um, become what drives us instead of the external. Yes. So I think there are two pieces here that we can tap into pragmatically. One is knowing that turning to something external, our brains are set up to become habituated to things so that basically so we can form habits and then we opens up our brain space to learn new things. So mm-hmm. if our habit is to soothe ourselves through, I'll just use the example of looking at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram, for example, right? right? <laughs> puppies are darn cute. But if we turn to look at cute puppies when we're anxious, for example, our brain is going to get habituated to that. And then it says, okay, I need cuter puppies. You know, I need puppies and kittens. I need puppies, kittens, and babies. And it just goes on and on and on. (laughs) Right. So we become habituated and we're always grasping for more. And that grasping Mm -hmm. is just a natural habituation process because our brain is saying, okay, I've learned this. I want, you know, I need to free up space to learn something else. So just knowing that if we look externally, we're always going to be looking. We're never going to be satisfied, just the way our brains are set up. And if we look internally, it's not just looking for, you know, to generate happy thoughts, for example, (laughs) because that can, we can also get habituated to those things. It's really looking to see what is rewarding in the sense of helping us open, you know, because, well, my lab did another study on this where we looked at a bunch of different mental states to see which ones were naturally more rewarding than others. Mm -hmm. And categorically, the ones that 
are more rewarding are the ones that feel open. So for example, kindness, connection, curiosity, they all feel open and they all feel better than disconnection, than anxiety, than frustration and things like that. So anything that makes us feel closed, even if it's an internal thing, is going to probably not going to be as rewarding as finding internally findable um, capacities like kindness and curiosity. And because they're open, my guess is that they don't become limited in the sense that of us becoming habituated to them. They just feel different, right? We, we don't run out of curiosity. We don't run out of kindness. And in fact, right. the kinder we are, the better it feels and the more we want to be kind. The more curious we are, the better it feels, the more we want to be more curious in the future. So they actually kind of pay it forward in that sense. Mm, I love that thought, paying it forward. This might be a weird question. Everything seems like it is a habit. And for me, it's been a bit overwhelming to see that and to really mm. acknowledge that. How we try to get to like the basis of something, like the core issue. Mm. Is there, when we start to see all of these different habit loops, is there a core habit that if discovered can start to shift all these other little habit loops? Is that, does that make sense? Yes. Th there isn't one core, you know, like the, that is the mother habit of the hive right. of all the little <laughs> worker bee habits, <laughs> so to speak. That's kind of what I was saying. Yeah. Yes. So we, but there is one core mother habit process that then is spun out into all the, the, you think of it as the phenotypes, the, the different habits that we have. So knowing the process, you know, that a trigger is going to uh, trigger a behavior and that the behavior is going to drive, you know, have some result. And the more rewarding that result is, the more likely we are to do that. That just knowing that process, I would think of that as that's where you get at the, the queen bee of, of the mind. And once we get there, we can start to see, okay, this queen bee makes a bunch of worker bees. Those worker bees can be unhelpful habits like overeating and procrastinating and worrying, but it can also generate helpful habits like kindness and curiosity. So that's the that's where I would say, you know, understanding that, that's the core that we need to understand. And it's beautiful, you know, when we do studies with our Unwinding Anxiety app or our Eat Right Now app or even our smoking app, people come to us and they say, you know, I learned about this habit, whether it's eating or smoking or, or anxiety, but it actually helped me learn about this and this and this and this and this habit as well. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of generalize that knowledge into wisdom. And when, when I see them generate that into wisdom, then I know they've really, they've really found the queen. Got it. Yeah. It's, if I think about it for me, kind of the, the core of that, knowing that pattern, these feelings they don't feel as good, you know, like judgment and worry and, and anxiety, all the, all of the, you know, sadness. I look at, I look at those and think basically I've connected a habit of living in those feelings instead of living in other feelings, because that's what I knew. Like that's what's felt safe. Mm -hmm. So if I think of it in that way, very simplistically, um, of, I'm just need to move over into these <laughs> other feelings. Um, that's kind of what feels like the, the core of, you know, of it, of how I've, my whole patterning has developed yes. I guess, over the years. Yes. And the beautiful part sense. here is that awareness will help us 
naturally move without us having to do anything. So really, if we are, for example, these three steps, awareness underlies all of them. If we're aware of our habit loops, right, and can map them out, then our brain will be able to see, oh, these are my habit loops. We don't, there's no force there. There's no effort beyond just the mapping process. If we get curious and ask ourselves, what am I getting from this in that second step where we start to become aware of the results of the behavior? Again, no effort, but as as we can see in our own in my own research studies, as people become aware of overeating, they stop overeating because that right. awareness helps them see, oh, this isn't help this isn't doing it for me. Awareness can be that third step, can be that bigger, better offer if we think of awareness as this curious awareness, or if we you know we can even think of awareness as helping us see how rewarding kindness is. Mm-hmm. so all of, all of these processes will naturally move us in the direction of curiosity and kindness simply by being curious ourselves. I love that because you always think you have to do something. Mm. It's like, what do I have to do? How do I have to fix myself? Yes. And I, I think that's so beautiful what you just said. The awareness in itself will naturally move us in that direction. So anybody like me, we can just all calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We can all calm down. We don't have to do as much. Mm. We can just just. I say just, but we can become more aware and be, you know, in the presence of what's happening. Thank you so much for lending your wisdom here today with me. I really do appreciate it. And I I have something that I ask all of my guests uh, because music obviously is my thing. I love... I love knowing what is on your playlist. If there's five songs, we have something called the Holy Five. If there's five songs that you are digging or have or over your lifetime or your favorites um, and why, I'd love to know. Well, you know this is an impossible question. (laughs) (laughs) Do it, though. You can do it. I will do my best. (laughs) Yes. I love Led Zeppelin. And oh, rock on. Yeah. So there's, I mean, everyone, they, everything from their blues to their hard rock, you know. So if you just think of like Cashmere, yeah. Black Dog, like those are just amazing songs. Um, I love it. Yeah. I, I love REM. The End of the World as We Know It is such a great song. Uh, and then there's uh, Jeff Buckley, his rendition of um, Hallelujah that was, oh, yeah. um, who I'm blanking. Oh, who's the guy with the very low voice that wrote the song? Uh, Leonard Cohen. Yes, Leonard Cohen. Thank yeah. you. Um, so Jeff Buckley, just ethereal the way he sings Hallelujah. So I love. So heartbreaking. Yes, yes. I just. <laughs> In I, the best way. Yes. I love Radiohead. Um, you know, you're a rock guy. I love it, yes. but very eclectic rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's just so many great artists out there. So yeah. Karma. Oh, what's the Radiohead song? Uh, Karma. Karma there you Police. Go. I was just about to say that, yes. and I was like, "There's no way that's right." <laughs> Karma Police. Uh, again, you know, just such a different sound and yeah. brilliant. I mean, that that the music is brilliant. So, yeah. you know, the, I would I would list those five just off the you know kind of off the top of my head, and then I could go on for hours about all the other music that I love. You know, I grew. I love up, that you love music, though. Well, I grew that's up, awesome. Yeah, I grew up playing violin. You know, classical oh, wow. violin, and so I've just. Uh, learn to appreciate really good music. Like um, I could go on and on and on, you know, like Metallica, they write great music. You know, they performed with the San Francisco orchestra, you know, they had an album with them. That was awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, when did you, when did you start playing violin? How old were you? I think I was five. 
Oh, wow. Is it something you still do? I do. I still play quartets with uh, folks that I um, played in the orchestra in college, and they happen to, you know, some folks that live in the area. So, yeah. That's so cool. Something I did not know about you. Oh, yeah. I had a semi-professional quartet in grad school that helped pay the bills because we we could charge a fair amount of money for weddings and things like that. I love that. That's amazing. Very cool. (laughs) We'll have to hire you. I love it. (laughs) That'd be awesome. You should totally come play with me one night. It's so fun. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for your work and your book. Um, It has really, it's changed my life. So I appreciate it. Uh, Well, it's so great to hear that. That is very rewarding to hear. Good, good, good. (laughs) We'll continue on. And that wraps up this episode of Holy Human. Thank you all so much for spending your time with me. I truly, truly appreciate you. Feel free to share your thoughts with me in the comments wherever you're listening. And if you think this episode might also benefit someone you know, please pass it along. Till next time. Bye, everyone. On the next episode of Holy Human, you'll meet the incredibly inspirational Lorea Gaston, a woman who has chosen a life path that just might change the way that you see yours and the way you view the paths others are on to. It is really, really great stuff. So I hope you can join us and I can't wait to share it with you. Holy Human with me, Leanne Rhymes, is a production of iHeartRadio. You'll find Holy Human with Leanne Rhymes on the iHeart app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the podcasts that matter most to you. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.